you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. I'm just incredibly thankful for the team I get to do ministry with. Uh, Sarah came in uh, literally the day this whole pandemic thing started. Uh, it was like, maybe she can have two last Sundays at offerings, which is where she was worshiping, and there haven't been two last Sundays. Uh, Janelle is, we've already said, is incredible. We see it in the comments. I love the Gutierrez family and, and this uh, new partnership and ministry. I, I Facebook stalked them before we ever interviewed and found that we had common friends on Facebook. And then I discovered that uh, some of Jeremiah's family is some of my wife's dearest friends from seminary. Uh, the, the team of, of you laity who, who lead this church so beautifully is incredible. Uh, since this started, Jan has been showing up and doing something Every week, now she's sticking thermometers to foreheads. Davey shows up and makes sure this tech stuff works even when I mess everything else up. Bill and Holly have just taken the, the room and dealt with it. Um, it is such an honor to be the pastor of this community and to be in ministry with you. Uh, for all the mess that the world is throwing at us and for as messy as ministry is right now, I wouldn't be in any other church because this church has been full of grace and mercy. Uh, these very characteristics of our God... Uh, you've embodied in this season. And that has not been the case for every church out there. I got lots of friends who went seminary with me and many of them are being eaten alive by their churches right now. You read the articles about pastors who are uh, ready to be done with ministry, who are looking to go back to the bank or wherever they worked before ministry, who are uh, just literally despondent because of the way they've been treated. And that has never been a concern for us. You have, you have, lavished us with grace and mercy throughout this whole process and where we have messed up you have offered us forgiveness and where we have needed it you've actually lifted us up and so I am incredibly appreciative of you and the way you've embodied God's heart uh, and the way you've been God's church would you pray with me gracious and loving God thank you that you have knit this community together for a time like this that uh, of all the ways our world could work out, you have poured out your grace upon the people called Andover and, and we have all wound up where we are in these very days that uh, we have found a common ministry and a common calling to proclaim you and you alone to the world and how that has been lived out in uh, the posture of grace and mercy of, of love and forgiveness. Would you open our hearts to hear afresh a word from you today, a word of hope, and a word of expectation. We love you and praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you haven't heard or watched Hamilton yet, I'm getting ready to spoil the whole thing for you. You're good. I have spoiled a Marvel movie for this family before. So I wanted to give that declaration up front. If, if, if you haven't watched it yet, it's only $6 on Disney+. Plus. It's not like you have to spend $500 to go to Louisville anymore. $6 will get you a front row seat to the best musical in the world right now. I was a fan of Rent before this came out, but Hamilton has surpassed it as the musical of musicals. Dina would tell me that it's actually the opera of operas because they don't talk. 
Uh, she said that the difference between a musical and an opera is that an opera is only singing. Chanel said, don't worry about the difference. But Hamilton has been my jam. I loved the soundtrack before I saw it. I saw it in Chicago. I would love to see it again, but I'm not paying Louisville prices. And they canceled uh, the showing in Chicago. But when it came to Disney+, Plus, the Fosters have watched Hamilton a few times. Uh, Felsha last night said, can you believe we haven't watched Hamilton in like two weeks? It, it's, it is our thing. We've watched the two Hulu documentaries on the background of Hamilton, all about Lin-Manuel's life and this, uh, how it kind of came to be. I love Hamilton. Do you understand what I'm saying? I love Hamilton. I know the words to all of it. I can rap most of it. I, I think... It is an incredible story. It's the story of Alexander Hamilton, the, one of the founding fathers, the first treasury secretary, this orphan from the Caribbean who through grit and uh, tenacity and a great sense of knowledge uh, works his way to be the right-hand man of George Washington. He and his dear friend John Lawrence, his, uh, his spy on the inside, Hercules Mulligan, and his, his, his battle friend, the Marquis de Lafayette. It's a great story of how they do the American Revolution, how they overcome King George, and King George is quite a character, isn't he, who will uh, remind you of his love by killing your friends and family. This is an incredible story, but it's not just the story of how he rises to military power, even how they defeat Britain. It's not even the story of how, uh, of how one founding father comes back from France and the story changes. It's not even the story of how Aaron Burr eventually kills him. It's a story of a complex human. One who, uh, for the whole first act, we are to love and to see as nearly perfect. He doesn't have flaws. He is bold when he needs to be. He's deferent when he needs to be. He uh, knows how to use his intellect to make things happen. And yet at the same time, he is this tender-hearted man who falls in love with Eliza Schuyler. They meet at a dance, they uh, start courting, and seemingly in a week he's in their house asking for, uh, for Philip Schuyler, not Philip Schuyler, the dad, his permission to marry Eliza. They wed, and it is this beautiful love story filled with great songs. We hear about some family drama, but, it, but it's a pretty good picture of this loving relationship. And then we hit the intermission. We hit this 15-minute break where if you're in Chicago, there's about a thousand of you trying to go to the bathroom in one 15-minute block. And it's it's a mad dash. But you get back because you know the second act is coming. And the first act has been incredible. You roll right into the second act. You meet Thomas Jefferson. And then pretty quickly, you meet Mariah Reynolds. This woman who... uh, comes into Alexander Hamilton's life and who ultimately he has a willing affair with and then who he's blackmailed by her husband and who he continues to have an affair with uh, under his own knowledge according to the song. This continues and he pays off this family to try to keep this a secret. Ultimately it comes out the, the three uh, antagonists have figured out what something is up and ultimately he, he comes clean and he doesn't want them to hold power over them so he, he declares in the most public way possible, I cheated on my wife. I'm going to write a pamphlet about it and publish it worldwide. 
He brings great shame upon their family and Eliza is devastated. She burns their letter. She says she's going to write herself out of the narrative and and you feel the devastation in this moment. The story just gets more and more and more painful until finally they break the tension and they're like, well, let's get back to the government. Let's not talk about his family for a minute. And the story kind of fades in the background for a while until their son tries to defend Alexander's honor. He hears that this man, Mr. George Eaker, has been talking trash about how his father has uh, cheated on his wife. Philip challenges him to a duel. They go off and they fight the Ten Duel Commandments. They turn and fire and George Eaker shoots Philip. Philip eventually dies with his mother and father at his side and we turn to the story, it's quiet uptown. Whew. If y'all ever want to see me cry, watch me driving down Nicholasville Road and it's quiet uptown comes on. It's this picture of this couple who is broken, who's, whose very relationship had been torn apart by this infidelity, by this public shaming, and now they've lost their beloved Philip. this song that tells us about him walking through the streets quietly alone and trying to figure out what has gone wrong. About halfway through the song, it talks about her coming along beside him, holding his hand and journeying through these streets where it's quiet uptown. The story of them trying to figure out what's going on and then the music begins to resolve and you hear uttered forgiveness. Can you imagine? This is where I begin weeping. By all accounts, she should not forgive him. He has ruined their relationship. Because of his, uh, his actions, their son is dead. And she forgives him. The story pretty rapidly moves to the end and Aaron Burr and he get into a duel. He is shot and he dies. Eliza lives another 50 years and sings the song about who lives and who dies, who tells your story. And she sings about the ways in which she has continued to tell his story and to love him despite how she's raised funds for the Washington Monument, how she's gone and heard what he went through in battle. And then ultimately, this is, this is where I sob uncontrollably. She talks about founding the first private orphanage in New York City because she knew what he had been through this orphan from the Caribbean who becomes this complex character who loves her deeply and yet hurts her so, this husband and father who she loves and offers forgiveness. Sean Gladding says that the world loves to tell our story. The story of Hamilton in many ways is our story and and, uh, don't push the metaphors too far, but Alexander very clearly lives a life that many of us live. A life where we continually make mistakes and we continually get it wrong and yet we are offered this forgiveness that should never have been offered. Our God offers forgiveness when we don't deserve it. Can you imagine? 
It's hard to hear it in that song and it's hard to hear it in our lives because we know how hard forgiveness is, right? It's hard to forgive the trivial, much less those things like Eliza did and much, much less like the things God forgives. This God who made us in his image and literally dwelt in the garden with us forgives us for breaking all that goodness, for sinning against him and against humanity. He offers us forgiveness. Then he asks us to do the same. Last week, we heard this passage about how you go and reconcile with a brother or sister in Christ who has sinned against you. And then this week, Peter picks right on up on that. And he goes to Jesus and says, how many times should I forgive a brother or sister who sins against me? Jesus kind of flips an Old Testament story and says, you've heard not just seven times, but 77 times. This is an absurd amount of forgiveness that Jesus is telling Peter to offer. And I can kind of even feel why Peter would want to say this, right? He's with this band of uh, rogue disciples, this group who you have to believe has conflict over three years, right? We we get glimpses of it. Well, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who gets to be the right hand? We have tax collectors and zealots. They had to have hated, we know they hated each other before this. There had to have still been conflict. Judas can't have been uh, a super uh, delightful person to be around all the time, right? How many times, Jesus, do we forgive him? How many times do we reconcile? And Jesus goes to the absurd and says 77 times. And if, if you don't get that, let me tell you a parable. It's like a king who had all these servants who owed him things. And he calls this one servant in who owes a thousand denarii. This translated as 10,000 bags of gold. Brad called it a thousand dollars in his children's message. uh, The best we can do the calculations to today's dollar is he owed him approximately 4.6 billion dollars. You can imagine paying back a thousand dollars by selling some of your stuff, right? $4.6 billion is a national debt for some small countries. It is like multinational corporation debt. It is like beyond our billionaire's debt at times, right? There is zero beyond zero percent chance that he is ever going to pay back $4.6 billion of debt. How is he going to find 10,000 bags of gold? He's not. And this king says... I forgive you. It's done. You know, I'm picture him saying, go in peace, right? And he goes out and he finds the servant who owes him money, 100 pieces of gold. This is still a lot of money. 100 pieces of gold is like 100 days worth of wages. This, this servant shouldn't have gotten into it, right? This is like payday lending that should never have happened. You, you, especially in the ancient Near East with the laws around lending and, and forgiveness, you shouldn't owe a third of a year's worth of money. But you can imagine paying a hundred days worth of income back, right? It'd be painful. It might mean selling a lot of things, but you can imagine it. This servant who'd been forgiven $4.6 billion in debt now goes and grabs him around the neck and says, give me my money. And he can't do it. And so he throws them in there and says, you need to sell everything you can until you do it. And until you can, we're putting you in this little prison. I never understood why you would put somebody in prison to get your money back, right? It seems counterintuitive. Let me, I never understood it when we read Dickens and they talked about the debtor's prison. How does this possibly make sense? But I think it reveals that we're just nasty people who treat people who owe us something wrong. 
get in this debtor's prison. The other servants are watching and they're like, can you believe what he's, can you believe that? The king forgave $4.6 billion in debt and now he's going to throw this person in jail over 100. We got to make sure the king knows. We're not going to preach today on these other servants going and tattling because that's a whole different thing I can't even figure out. But they do. And thank goodness for the story because it doesn't work as well if they don't. The king finds out and the king goes and says, look, I forgave you $4.6 billion and you're going to treat them this way over a third of a year's worth of wages. I'm going to throw you in here until you can pay this off. The, the sense being, you cannot pay this off. This is, this is permanent. This is your new reality because of your lack of compassion and forgiveness. Jesus says, this is how the kingdom of heaven is going to be. Your God has forgiven you abundantly. How will you deal with forgiveness now? This seems to be the very first setup of this idea of binding on earth what is bound in heaven and loosing on earth what is loosed in heaven. This has been picked up in Matthew 13, Matthew 16, and now Matthew 18, that what we do on earth has some heavenly impact. Can, can we picture forgiving as, as remarkably as Jesus forgave us, as God forgave us? I love our two texts today, and I got so excited, I got all up into it, that I called the anthem before Jeremiah even got to read the Old Testament text. I got all shook up and was all excited because I've been ready to preach today. And so he didn't even get to read you the story that comes at the end of the Joseph narrative. Joseph, this firstborn son of, well, he's not the firstborn, but he's the firstborn of Jacob and Rachel. He is the the eye of Jacob's heart, has been sold into slavery by his brothers because they do not like him. This is Joseph, the one of the Technicolor Dreamcoat, if you like that musical, the Kutanin Pasim, if you like the Hebrew. This is the beloved child, and they throw him into slavery. I, I think there's a lot of story before this, right? You don't throw like a, a middle teenager into slavery and not have had a life of conflict, right? This is not the first time Joseph has like said, look at me, I'm going to be the ones you bow down to because he's done this dream telling and it's not pretty for his siblings. They've got to have been mean to him his whole life. There's been this conflict and so then they go and sell him into slavery and tell his father, oh, the animals ate him, he's dead. He goes and he ends up in Egypt by some miraculous way. He gets uh, in prison there. Ultimately, he's released because of his ability to uh, divine dreams. He ascends to be the second in command at the right hand of Pharaoh. He amasses great stores of grain and wealth because he knows that this famine is coming. He is the power broker of Egypt. Famine hits the land. There is no food to be found. And ultimately, his family has to come to Egypt to survive. They come and there's this whole big story about them realizing it's Joseph or Joseph realizing it's them. He demands the younger brother to stay with them. They go to their father. He's devastated. He thinks he's lost both of his young beloved children. And ultimately, they come and beg, help us, care for us. Ultimately, Joseph reveals himself to them as the brother that they sold. They, they sort of reconcile and then Jacob dies. Israel dies and now the brothers are worried. They've talked to their dad, what do we do? And he says, go and beg your brother's forgiveness. This is the only hope you have. Beg their forgiveness for what you have done to them, what y'all have done to him. 
he says, who am I? I'm not God. You planned harm for me, but God was able to bring about good despite what you did. And offers complete and total forgiveness, sets them up, and we end the Genesis story with a picture of forgiveness that is unimaginable. The text that's, that Jeremiah read from Romans. It's a little more nebulous to get to this picture of forgiveness, but it might be even bigger. This is a picture of two groups coming together in the church at Rome. This group that they call the weak ones. This is the ethnic Jewish Christians who had been kicked out of Rome by the Emperor Nero, who had been banished and persecuted, who were no longer part of the Roman church. Finally being able to come back in. They are weak because the Gentile church has been able to build up this church the whole time they've been gone. This, this new, non-kosher, non-Abrahamic church that has become mighty in stature is now welcoming back these ethnic Jewish Christians into their midst. This group who says that uh, really, if you're people of faith, you eat kosher, you're circumcised, you don't eat with other types of people, but they have no power because of their numbers and because of their, their banishment. And you have the powerful Gentile Christians because of numbers and because of their position within the empire who yet don't have a story. They don't have claim that Abraham is our father, that we stand in the line of Jesus ethnically. You have this church who's nearly going to rip itself apart because you're wrong and you're wrong. You're terrible and you're terrible. You have to eat this way. No, you have to be this. And Paul says, friends, as Christ has reconciled us all together, you must be reconciled together. This is at that core level of forgiveness and grace. These people who by all accounts should hate each other, this group of Gentile Christians who were the minority before they were pushed out now hold the, the home churches. They hold the keys to the buildings, literally. These ethnic Jews who were raised that there is a way you live and the way that you act and the way that you eat and the way that you mark that you are one of God's people. And God says, despite all this conflict, you have to reconcile We don't like to reconcile, do we? If we're being really honest, reconciliation requires us to give up something. Forgiveness requires us to give up something. It requires us to let go of the power of at least saying you were wrong. Forgiveness requires us to trust that God is in control. And that ultimately things will work out for good. Forgiveness requires us to believe that as we've been forgiven, other people deserve forgiveness, that we don't deserve to hold the power over them. And it's not a one-time forgiveness. It's a seven times seven, 77 times forgiveness. It's a $4.6 billion kind of forgiveness that God has given us. And then he says, what are you going to do 
with a forgiveness that looks like a third of the year's wages, right? This isn't the trivial, like somebody stepped on my polished shoes as I walked into church. This is the, they have caused me great harm. They have broken our relationship. This is, dad was a terrible dad. Or that best friend has completely betrayed me. It's letting go of the power to hold on to that for the sake of offering that same forgiveness that God offered us to them. This passage is is, uh, powerful when you think of how what we do impacts what happens later. Dale Bruner says that we stand between the two great reckonings, that Christ has offered forgiveness to the entire world. Through the work he has done on the cross, forgiveness is imaginable for every single one of us. But that what we do with that forgiveness in the here and now matters for the second great reckoning, that how we treat others has bearing on how we're treated in the end. You hear it in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's not some pithy saying we Christians came up with because it just sounds good. It's a like call to radical forgiveness. It's like a come out of this election cycle and forgive the people that you disagree with. Friends, I'm watching Facebook. There is massive amounts of forgiveness that needs to be offered already. It's like I don't want to push that it's like too far, but y'all know this world is in desperate need of forgiveness. And imagine each one of us is. If we're honest with our heart, there are people we need to extend forgiveness to that we're still holding on, whether it's something from our childhood or whether it's something from this past week. I am not sanctified yet. I'm working on it and I'm praying that it happens sooner. But day after day, I have to sit and go, Oh, I have to offer that person forgiveness. I have to extend grace and mercy. I'd invite you to consider where you need to extend grace and mercy, where you need to trust that things will work out. Uh, Felsha was reading uh, Glittering Vices this week. It's by Rebecca DeYoung. It's this book on the seven deadly sins, and she was reading the chapter on anger, and she got this quote that has stuck with me all week. Forgiveness requires us to trust in God's justice. Hear that again. Forgiveness requires us to trust in God's justice. That no matter what has been done or no matter how it has happened, that ultimately God is the one who will be the one that makes things right. The one who will weigh the scales and balance things out. That is not our job to bring justice to the land. We've felt this when we were the weeds in the wheat, right? Our job was to be wheat, not to be the harvester who separates the good from the bad. We've heard it with the good and bad fish. We aren't the ones who throw out the bad. We're the ones who just try to be good fish. Part of being wheat and part of being good fish means extending forgiveness even when it is undeserved because that's what forgiveness is, right? God forgave $4.6 billion of forgiveness for us and invites us to do the same. It is not insignificant. It is not trivial. When, uh, when we toss out things, well, like you just have to forgive them. Uh, it minimizes the realities of what has happened. 
I, I want to be clear that forgiveness does not equal forgetting. Forgiveness doesn't even mean allowing the same situation to happen. I don't even want to push the Hamilton metaphor too far because uh, I question using it because there are some things that Alexander Hamilton did that uh, forgiveness should have looked like uh, some distance between him and Eliza. This is not a call to allow yourself to be abused time and time again. This is not a call to be trampled upon, but it is a call to let go of the power in your heart over that person and what they have done. It's a call to trust God's justice. It's a call to believe that just as God has forgiven you, and I hope that you feel that forgiveness and feel that grace poured out, that God is asking you to do the same. That's why I love that we come to the table every week and we come first as the people who confess that we need forgiveness. For I think that when we remind ourselves that we need forgiveness, it, it can only invite us to remember that we need to forgive others.